afternoon. This is Devora Enten. I'm here with Jake Anderson, and I'm so grateful to you to be willing to spend a few minutes with us and talk about your initiative with you and your wife have created Fertility IQ. Uh, I work as a consultant with Yesh Tikva. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I specialize in working with the population of individuals and couples who are struggling with infertility, with pregnancy loss, as well as in uh, perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. And I think especially at this time where we're dealing with um, kind of the resurgence of maybe are we shutting down again because of COVID? Are we, what are our clinics gonna look like? Are our fertility clinics gonna look like in a few weeks time? And, and I think even coming off of what they've looked like until now, um, I'm very interested in, in hearing more about your story and then maybe we'll get into a couple questions relating pretty, you know, specifically to COVID, but why don't we start with you telling me about yourself and your program and how this whole idea got launched? Yeah, that's great. Thanks for having me. Um, so Deborah, effectively for us, um, my wife and I, um, we sort of struggled in the fertility process. We were um, theoretically on the younger side. We didn't expect to have any um, issues. We encountered quite a few, went to three different clinics, two different states, um, spent a lot of money and a lot of time and emotion in the process, and it, it really brought the relationship to the to um, to the brink. If I'm being honest with you, the, the major issue that we contended with was we just didn't feel like we were getting good, rigorous, reliable information um, that was commensurate with the cost and the seriousness of the subject. We just felt like we were making snap judgment, life-altering decisions. Uh, without good information. And so uh, we left our jobs to, um, to build Fertility IQ. We have really uh, one remit, which is to get people reliable information. We have two products. You can come to us and read assessments of fertility doctors and clinics in the States, um, according to people like you. So you could say I'm a Ashkenazi Jewish 40-year-old woman thinking about doing donor egg in New York and show me reviews written by people like me and what they experienced. So that's one thing are our assessments. And then the other thing that we do is we have these very detailed rigorous courses. And so you might say, hey, I'm thinking about doing IUI or IVF. How do I think through the trade-offs of each? Or, you know, uh, my doctor told me to do uh, PGTA testing on my embryos. They came back mosaic. What does that mean? And, and what do I do from there? And that, that's really our focus. So uh, assessments and, um, and coursework. And what has been um, the, well, first of all, I, I, I want to just make kind of like a, a note in that conversation about like a brought my relationship to the brink. I think that you just, you know, I just got to, I got to pause on that for a minute and in how um, kind of prevalent that conversation tends to be between couples and that we, we push and we push and we push for fertility and then the relationship can really struggle. So um, just acknowledging how universal that experience can be for couples and how, especially the extra strain of, I don't know. I don't know how to figure this thing out on my own. Um, what are some of the things that you're hearing from your clientele, the people that are checking in on and giving reviews about the doctors? What are you hearing as the number one or two or three concerns? And what are the things that are like the, the most valuable for them to, to identify? Like, what are they seeking information about? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, um, you know, when we hear um, patients weigh in on their experience with um, doctors and clinics, I think, um, we hear typically a, a, a few things. Um, one is um, there's just variation in what people want. I think it's really important to realize that there are some people that want um, their doctor to explain every specific scientific detail and options, and there are others that are ready to abdicate responsibility for those decisions and say, hey, listen, save me the time and the effort, you know, you decide. So I think there's a fair amount of heterogeneity in terms of, you know, what people 
um, want from a, a relationship with um, the doctor and the detail that that's provided. Um, I think one of the things that um, patients come to appreciate are things that are not clear at the outset. For instance, one I think would be the importance of the laboratory. Um, the laboratory, I think, um, is very much make or break in the, the process. Um, you know, you can't change the quality of your, your eggs and, um, and your sperm, but the quality of the laboratory can uh, improve the ability for those embryos once created to improve the odds of a, a live birth. I think that's something that patients don't realize until um, they've gotten pretty far into the process and, and have started to ask piercing questions on that front. I think the other thing that, um, you know, patients come to realize is that no, you know, no clinic is perfect. No doctor is perfect. We're all human beings. And what that typically means is that there will be trade-offs no matter where you go. Um, there will be, um, you know, terrific nursing team, maybe less than terrific billing department, um, and all sorts of different, different variables. And so I think the thing that's important, what patients come to realize is, is that not that I'm trying to find the perfect clinic, but one whose strengths and weaknesses can comport with what works for me. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a, a level of texture and nuance that, that, that ends up being a, a bit of a surprise for people uh, in, in the process. You know, ultimately, um, you know, at the end of the day, we, we do see a fair amount of correlation between um, whether people felt like they were treated like a number or like a human being and the odds that they will recommend that clinic to somebody else, regardless of whether they succeeded in, in, in treatment. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, when I think about that laboratory, I think one of the, you know, as being a non-medical professional seeking care, what I tend to hear so often is, I, I, I don't want to make my doctor upset, or I don't want to, like, I don't want to rock the boat. Um, and I don't know if it's my right to ask some of these questions. And I think that that leaves us in a particularly vulnerable state as a patient or as a client. What are some of the ways that you might encourage someone who feels maybe a little bit like vulnerable and to the point where I don't feel comfortable asking some questions? What are some of the ways that you might encourage somebody to do that? And also like, what are some of those questions to check in about that lab? I think that's really important. I think many of us, you know, we want to be respectful of people. Uh, and, um, and so, um, yeah, it can be, um, it can be a, a ginger and tender thing to, to ask, you know, very specific questions around quality control and, and, and things of, of that nature. So I, I understand the, um, the need for, for delicacy. You know, at the same time, I think most fertility patients will tell you this again and again, which is they wish they had become a better advocate for themselves at the outset. Honestly, I hear it so often that I've almost become desensitized to it. But yet I think it's the most true thing in this whole process, which is there's a lot of complexity and even well-intentioned doctors and clinics can um, advance past explaining something that's impertinent for you to hear. Um, and so I think at some point you sort of need to say to yourself, this is so important. I need to make sure that I'm coherent on the answers. Uh, and so, you know, oftentimes I think just a gentle, hey, listen, uh, know you things do things really well around here. I hope you don't mind if I ask a few specific questions um, because I've got a, a lot of money and a lot yeah. of hope invested in this. I hope you can understand that. And then um, I think most doctors and clinics, I think once you phrase things in that way or are very receptive. I think even if you don't phrase it in the way many are receptive. Thereafter, I think the things that one really needs to focus on, um, not to get too medically, are yeah, the, the key performance indicators around the laboratory. 
Um, and there's a bunch of uh, that you could focus on. I think from an IVF perspective, this thing called the glass conversion rate, which is how many fertilized eggs lead up to um, reaching a day five blastocyst. I think that frankly is kind of the most important, but there, there are others that are important. Um, separate and aside from that, there are questions that I think you can pose around when they think it's right to matriculate from one stage to another, from Clomid to IUI, IUI to IVF, IVF with your own eggs to IVF with donor eggs, and, and how they think through those breakpoints. I think that can be really, um, uh, really telling um, about the, the doctor's thought process. You know, there are some just aspects of clinics that I think are characteristics that we've sort of noticed in time, which is and again, everything has trade-offs. You know, if you go to an academic medical center, you know, oftentimes those doctors, they, they, um, they're very up on the medicine and usually they have no economic skin in the game which treatment you choose, which is great. Um, they oftentimes do run a lab. They may be publishing, they may be overseeing fellows and, you know, there's only so many hours in a day. And so I think, you know, recognizing that that can be uh, a good, uh, a strength and a trade-off, mm -hmm. I think at... Um, you know, at some of the smaller clinics, you'll receive more individualized care and you'll know your doctor and your doctor may be up on your, um, up on your profile. Um, and yet sometimes smaller clinics, they don't have the same resources as larger clinics do. And so I think just sort of realizing the profile of you're going to academic versus non-academic, um, large versus small, I think putting things in those quadrants can be, can be useful. And how would I assess if you say to me, um, how many blastocytes, how, how many blastocysts make it to a lot, you know, to, to day five, how do I know if that's a good number, right? Like if I'm, if I don't know what is a good number, how do I know how to qualify that information? Yeah. So if somebody responds to you and, and how do you characterize, like, should I be encouraged by that? Or uh, is it, should I be ambivalent or should I think about going elsewhere? You know, I will say, even once you get it, a number from people, sometimes um, it's, uh, uh, it can be difficult to interpret. Um, if a clinic sees a lot of really hard patients who are um, possibly on the older side, um, by virtue of the nature of who they see and rather than the quality of laboratory, um, you, um, you might see different numbers. However, holding that in abeyance for a second, assuming people see generally the same population, like you're looking at um, you know, two somewhat similar clinics, um, there's a society of embryologists that sort of puts out some, some, you know, mile markers and things of that nature, you know, for something like uh, blast conversion rate, if you see something around 50% of fertilized eggs lead to a day five blastocyst, that's typically considered pretty encouraging. And if you see something lower than that, it may, there may be a good reason that has nothing to do with the quality of the laboratory, but you might want to punch into that and understand um, why that'd be the case. So 50%, um, I think for the most part is, um, is generally pretty encouraging. Okay. And what do you, what are you finding? You know, one of the questions I have when, it, when people are assessing clinics beyond the lab, I guess, or in addition to the lab might be the, the large practices versus that one person in practice. And I guess I always felt, felt like the one person in practice worried me. And is, it, is there any truth in that? Like, I want you to be attached to something bigger. Um, what's your sense of that? Yeah, I think it's, so I think one thing to, you know, to sort of wonder aloud, is there any data that would um, reveal a larger clinic has higher uh, IVF success rates? That's hard to, to interpret and disentangle. I've seen data that cuts both ways. I've seen data that um, makes no conclusion. So, you know, knowing that would be great. I think we put that aside because I think it's, it is pretty hard to say that 
for sure. You know, the way I think about the larger versus the smaller um, lab clinics, what we've seen, at least in our data, uh, and it's not peer reviewed and published, but we presented it at ASRM is, um, if we look at, um, um, if we look at the errors that people experience at a clinic, we see them sort of the percentage of errors that they experience go up um, until a clinic hits about a thousand um, IVF cycles per year, in which case we see it actually drop off. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I do wonder to some extent whether adding more volume into the system can be painful and create issues up until the point where the place is frankly so hefty it becomes more like a, a machine. Like a That's all theoretical. Um, but I generally think for the most part, bigger clinics have bigger budgets. They have more money to devote to the laboratory, maybe more resources. Um, I think to the extent that the doctors actually really do convene and discuss hard cases, you get a second set of eyes on, on your case, which can be reassuring if it's a hard case. However, you know, bigger places means usually more chaos for the most part. And that means you may not see your doctor repeatedly. You may see a nurse repeatedly. Things slip through the cracks. And you can debate whether that is less true at a, a, a solo practitioner or where there's frankly fewer moving parts, but also maybe less redundancy. Uh, mm -hmm. Usually smaller clinics will have you know, one or two doctors, one or two embryologists, and you know things happen in life to the extent that somebody gets sick, somebody gets sick with COVID, who knows, you could draw the conclusion that they, maybe there's less backup in place. So uh, I could argue both ways. Interesting. So what would you say are the top like takeaways from the data that you've been collecting over time? Um, especially maybe if you were if you were a physician listening to this, if you were a reproductive endocrinologist who happened upon this video and you want to say, you know, listen, this is the top three important things that your clients or your patients really are expecting from you. And if you want to be like a top doctor, these are the three things that we hear the most from our, our patients. Yeah, that's a tough one. You know, I think the um this stuff, we had an article um, published along with the team at Emory in Fertility and Sterility. So it was subject to peer review. And I think we saw a pretty close correlation between um, patient satisfaction and a few factors. And again, we isolated out the variable whether somebody succeeded or not. Because obviously, if somebody succeeds, they're going to be- They love their doctor. <laughs> yeah, of course. But I think um, at the few things I would say, one is on the, were you treated like a number or like a human being? Um, continue and we definitely see a close correlation between treated like a human being and willingness uh, to, to recommend that doctor or clinic. Um, we also see um, pretty tight correlation um, between whether the doctor adjusted treatment for me. I think um, a major hangout for fertility patients given that so much IVF doesn't work the first time is that the doctor seemingly just did the same thing again and expected yeah. a different result and I think um, patients um, want to perceive that you've learned from the previous cycle and have made some sort of adjustment. And, you know, I don't know if patients can um, tell the difference between a 50 international unit dose change for gonadotropin. That may seem like a lot, but in actuality, it may not be that much. But I do think patients, it's important for them um, to feel as though the doctor is being scrappy and investigative um, and not just running it back. I would say the billing department matters. You know, it's the billing department, you could argue, you know, may not be the crucible thing that will change your odds of, of success. But um, if a patient fails treatment and feels like they got overbilled, that is a 
that's a hard one for them to choke down. And I think there's a very realistic chance you either lose that business or you lose the ability to have a positive referral. And so um, those are some of the things from our data that's, that's sort of, you know, jumped out. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. So let's just, as we kind of finish up tonight, today, tell me a little bit about what your thoughts are as we move towards uh, kind of this question mark around COVID, around shutdowns, openings. What have you been hearing from the people that are struggling through this really difficult time period? You know, I think, I think everybody's really struggling. I think um, obviously patients are, are struggling. Those who are dying to get in and do the retrieval um, or um, those who are ready to do a transfer, even if those embryos are frozen, doesn't change the odds um, of a delay of that they'll, they'll get pregnant, um, but still it's aggravating. And then the, the doctors and nurses, I think this is unbelievably hard for these people. Um, they're working longer hours than they used to under unusual circumstances. And many times they have their own families at home, older parents, younger kids. And so um, I would just say that this is, uh, this is just a terrible period for everybody involved. Um, and uh, the things that I think we're hearing from, you know, patients um, specifically um, is, you know, um, I think is, is questions around is it safe to go back into a public place um and um and once i do how do i feel about being pregnant in this period and what are the medical implications for me and god willing my offspring um, right. to have children? and so i i you know i think those are the things that 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 weigh on people i would say for the most part the survey work that we've done is i think most people have advanced past those concerns and have said i'm, I'm gonna do this I think for a non-insignificant minority, there is a, a lingering concern over yeah. those things. Um, but very few people that we've surveyed have said, this is a showstopper. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna discontinue treatment. Um, you know, even amidst the economic downdraft of, hey, now even if I, you know, medically am comfortable doing this, can I financially afford it? Right. And I think what we've seen is, is yeah, people are nervous about the economic situation, but um, they're still very compelled to get into treatment and find the way to pay for it. And, and yeah. the situation's not stopping them. It's interesting also because if you think about it, like the there's the, this concept of time passing. If there's anybody who feels the clock ticking, it's people that are going through fertility treatment. And like that idea of like, well, I'll just wait a little bit longer. I'll just push it off. They, we don't have that luxury when we're sitting in fertility and, um, and those struggles. And I think that if, if anybody gets it, it's this community uh, of individuals of time. Time means a lot to us. Um, and it's a tough, it's a tough idea to, to have put something on pause. It really is. And, you know, I mean, it depends on the type of patient. Some patients, they have a bit more runway and they can, their odds of success can maybe tolerate a, a delay for other patients. Um, a few months it's might a be important. And it's yeah. tough to know yeah. who you are. You know, it doesn't always, it does correlate to age, but it's not always lockstep with age yeah. or diagnosis. And so I think that's a challenge. I think one of the things that um, we do lose sight of to some extent is, if you have your embryos frozen, the quality of those embryos will not degrade um, having to wait for that frozen transfer. And so while waiting to do the transfer is agonizing, truly agonizing, um, waiting to do the transfer may not um, weigh on your odds for that transfer to work. True. That's different than people who are waiting to have an egg retrieval um, 
where um, you're, you, you may be in a different boat. And so I think making that distinction for people to some extent allays a little anxiety, yeah. um, but, but maybe not much. Let me ask you one final question, just because you brought up an idea for me. Like I'm thinking about people trying to synthesize information that's coming out you know, in the popular press. And one of the things I work with in, as a therapist is people you know, reading that singular case study relating to COVID crosses the placenta or COVID, you know, the higher risk implications of COVID on a pregnant woman. And like, oh, what do we do with this information? And recognize if you read the data, it's like one case study, one review of a case of 12 individuals in Europe. It's not significant enough from a research perspective, but that's still enough to cause extraordinary distress in the people that are reading those cases. Are you hearing that from your clientele as well? And how do you address that? Well, one thing I should probably be in, a, be in a rush to say and should have said at the outset, obviously, I'm just a random, regular person. I'm not, <laughs> a, not medically trained. Um, you know, I'm somewhat better than just a person off the street. But um, uh, I should just sort of say uh, say that at the, uh, I should have said that at the outset. Yeah, you know, I think, um, yeah, you know, there's, um, yeah, I think when I look over scientific and medical literature, obviously a lot more credence is paid towards the studies that have a larger sample size that are more representative. And, um, and in the absence of that sometimes, then the focus focuses on um, what's known as a case study, individual examples. And they can be to some extent useful. Uh, they're certainly um, more interesting for writers to write about when they write stories because they want to start with the vignette that makes it real. But it's very easy to over-index on those um, and, um, and the reality is, is that's why you need real studies. Unfortunately, in this set of circumstances, you have to have a big number of study, a big number of patients, and then you have to roll it through all the way to pregnancy and maybe even a year after the child's born, you know, that's going to be it's two a new years virus, right? Yeah, it's be two years down the line. And so, you know, I, um, I understand the impatience, uh, that, that, that people have. Um, and yet a lot of these examples wouldn't, wouldn't meet, you know, the standards that people have for literature to build uh, a theory on and, and build a clinical practice. Upon. Yeah. And it's just part of the ongoing struggle that I think people are having in these situations with like, well, who do I know? What do I, what do I believe? And where do I get the good information? And that's, I think what I appreciate the most about your website is that idea of like an accurate place to go to get quality, valuable medical, uh, you know, research-based information and helps me create a list of questions and guidelines that will help guide other people in their treatment. So thank you for that. <laughs> My pleasure. And speaking of COVID, you know, every few weeks we do something new on COVID where we'll have a, a, a reproductive urologist out of University of Utah, reproductive endocrinologist out of Hopkins or uh, Northwestern or um, UCSF answering specific questions like this. And, you know, I think one of the refrains that you'll hear is, is we just aren't sure yet. You'll hear this term reassuring, the data looks reassuring, which is with limited information, we're not uh, scared yet. And right. um, at the same time, we, we still don't know enough. And right. so that's unsatisfying for people uh, to not have something de definitive, but at least they're, here seeing, they're hearing from qualified experts who've reviewed the, uh, the most recent useful information to go on. Yeah, and I know that ACOG still has made that recommendation that women should not hesitate in proceeding through pregnancy or attempting pregnancy um, at this time because of COVID, that there is no hesitation on their part. So we go with, the, we go with what we can. So thank you so much for, for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Um, for further information, check out Fertility IQ, and then you could also check out Yeshtikva, which also will link you there. Um, we're glad